We're going to look at Psalm 8. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. Nine verses. It says, To the choir master according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. Then verse 1. Our Lord, our Lord. I'm sorry. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So one of the main, or I guess I should say most popular commentators on the book of Psalms is a theologian named Derek Kidner, and he said this about Psalm 8. He said, quote, This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. I'm going to finish this quote in a minute, but when you hear a statement like that, what a hymn should be, what do you think a hymn should be? You know, or first of all, what is a hymn, I guess, you know. Um, a hymn, we could say, is something we sing in church. So to you, what should a him be what do you think pardon praise Praise? okay what else sure (laughs) yes praise and worship i guess could go together yeah what else what could make it up theology theology okay good and theology is what what is theology study of god good so we want theology in our hymns right um and if you think historically of the church, and this, of course, Psalms being a hymn book for the Hebrews, um, and then you think historically for the church of the early hymns, we would call them, they are deeply steeped in theology, right? Um, uh, I guess about a month ago, Kit and I and Jeff and Betty Ann Horn drove to Memphis to a concert. Long way to go for a concert, Right. Um, wasn't Led Zeppelin or anything like that, but that might be pretty cool, but it wasn't that, but, um, it was Indelible Grace. Have y'all ever heard of them? So, uh, the guy, Kevin Twitz, the, uh, um, RUF, uh, pastor at Belmont College, at Belmont College, which is a music school. And I mean, probably 15 years or so ago, their first Indelible Grace group came out. And he took kids from that college that were gifted musicians and they formed this group. And, and what they've done is they've taken the old hymns and rewritten them to modern music so that we would all enjoy that if you like modern music, you know. I grew up in the rock era, so that's kind of the sound that appeals to me. And so they've got these just deep theology in these songs with modern instruments and and the concert was phenomenal it actually was a sing-along you know so it was like a fox theater type setting and you know we would have you up and down and some of the more famous sandra mccracken is one of the musicians out of that jars of clay a couple of those guys spun out so it was fantastic but again they these songs have a deep theology about god in them which then if there's a deep theology about God, um, that doesn't mean that we just dispose of man, right? But I think you got to have it in the right order. And of course, when we've got a deep theology about God in our hymns, then man naturally comes into it as he does in Psalm 8 here. But the gist of it, at least to start with, is more about God than it is about us. But then it can have us in it as well as the psalmist does here. So again, I'm going to finish the Kidner quote. He says, quote, This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and the grace of God, rehearsing who he is 
and here's the key, I think, in what he has done and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. The range of thought takes us not only above the heavens in this psalm and back to the beginning, but as the New Testament points out, on to the very end. So that that's what Kidner says about this. So you've, we've got God and who he is and then what he has done. And that's the part that where we come in, right? What he has done for us. And I think that's uh, what makes a, a, a song a good hymn. If you got both of those. And unfortunately, what happens so often in Christian music today is that it's all about us and not about God. So I think keep that in mind when we're talking about uh, him. So the, the psalm, Psalm 8's theme is really the greatness of God in the place of us, mankind, within God's universe. So I think a great title for this psalm would be Our God, Our Glory, right? So you've got God first and then the glory that he has bestowed upon us. And there's four obvious parts to the psalm, verses 1 and 2, we could call the celebration of the surpassing majesty of God, verses 3 and 4, confession of the insignificance of man. Are you all right with me saying that? The insignificance of us. By man, we're not just talking about the guys, right? And then verses 5 through 8, the astonishment at the significance of man. And verse 9, a concluding refrain that repeats the first line, as you could see. But the most striking feature of Psalm 8 and its dominant theme, if we count verses, is the description of man and his place in the created order. All right, But the psalm does not begin by talking about man. That's the dominant theme of where, uh, creation of us, where we fit in the whole order, but it doesn't start with that, right? It begins with a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God, which I think any good hymn should, and this places us within this cosmic framework of God. It's a way of saying from the outset that we'll never understand human beings unless, unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize that they have special responsibilities to their creator. And, you know, this really, really, really can, as we'll see as we dive into this further in a little bit, this really hit home for me um, last week. Uh, I think it was last Saturday, maybe. Uh, we were eating lunch. I turned the TV on, and it was um, one of these panel things that I can't remember what channel. One of the local channels was doing. It had a panel of political people, I guess, and, and people involved in the communities of the city of Atlanta and all of the crime that is is going on there and the uh just the you know that they just they don't know what to do right i mean at the end of the day they just don't know what to do but praise the lord that they are at least getting together and opening their mouths and having some discussion rather than just letting it be right so they're but it's frustrating to me to watch and realize that hey i know the answer Right. And I watched this for about a half an hour and they never addressed that. You know, this guy would speak and he had great speaking points and, you know, great bullet points about what we can do about this. And this one would speak and that one would speak and and they'd go on and on. But fundamentally, what's wrong and we know this, right, because the Lord has changed us. But fundamentally, what's wrong with society today is that the world doesn't see mankind as being made in the image of God. And challenging them with that, right? And, and, and if, if we don't recognize that, then we don't see that we have any responsibility to God. And we try and fix things with a humanistic approach, which, you know, it, it's just this weird, um, what's the right word? Pardon? Just a position. There you go. I can't even say that word. One of those, right? Juxtaposition. Uh, that's right. So it is, right? So we live in between these two poles of life, right? And on this level right here is everything. And we know at the end, we know for us what it is, but it's maybe it's not to y'all, but it's frustrating as all get out to me to know what the answer is, right? And I'll never forget that one of the first times I went to Peru and, and I was in this village and, and I've probably shared this before, but the, 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 
power was cut off from the, the whole village. 300 people, no electricity, because whoever's in charge of paying the power bill, getting money from everybody, didn't pay it, so they just cut it off for the whole little village. And um, I was just stricken with the, uh, with the um, uh, poverty that I saw. And so I said to Brad, our missionary there, I said, oh, you know, man, I need to go home and raise money. And, and he's like, Tim, <laughs> money's not the problem here, right? That's not the answer. You could go raise $50 million and bring it and divide it evenly among these 300 people, and it's not going to change anything it may, except make them worse sinners you know and I said what do you mean you know and he's like what they need is the gospel one family at a time changing and of course that's right right and and that so I have to reel myself back in when I think okay well we got a city of six million here and you know what what could me sharing the gospel with one person and what kind of difference could that even make right but but it can because one dad coming to know Christ you know, and then his wife and then the children, you know, that can make a difference in time. At least it make a difference for that one family that maybe was on a path of crime and destruction. But one responsibility of us, and this is where it comes down to being um, sharers of the gospel to bring change, is that is, is we were created in God's image, recognize that, realize that. And then we have the responsibility to praise God, right? That's one of the things that God desires of us, his children, to do, is to worship him, to praise him. And, of course, that's what we see David himself doing here in this psalm. You know, he he does it with great grandeur, beginning the psalm with the two great names of God, Jehovah, which you see in your uh, Bible there is all capital letters, um, Lord, all capital letters, that's the, the Hebrew has Jehovah there. Uh, some translations might have Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, and then Adonijah is the second word, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. So literally in the Hebrew Bible, that would read, O Jehovah, our Adonijah. And it's interesting that the ancient Hebrew language of the Old Testament uh, when it was originally written, it didn't have any vowels in the alphabet. Now think about that, those of you that are teachers and teach your children, right? The the written form of the ancient Hebrew is a consonant-only language. Have you ever seen a language that is kind of like that? Um, I, I know in Peru, again, the Quechua language is uh, is like that. You know, you might have a word that's 18 letters and there might be one vowel in it, you know, and it's got a nasally sound to it too. And he's like, what in the world? You know, Spanish is one thing, but then to add that to it, um, but a consonant only language. Um, I'm reading a, a book right now um, about the uh, discovery of the, the uh, source of the Nile River in the 1850s. And the lead guy on this uh, knows 39 languages, fluent, or knew, he's dead, of course, but uh, was fluent in 39 languages, and not only fluent in it, but um, so good at it before this expedition, just to kind of show what kind of guy this guy was, the author of the book gives one, an expedition that he did prior to this one, which he 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 made himself, uh, uh, he's, he's an agnostic, doesn't believe in any God, but he's He's thoroughly versed in every religion. So he decided he wanted to do the Muslim trip to Mecca. Well, you know, an infidel to do that, you got to be really good to pull that one off. So he takes these months, years of uh, taking walnut juice and oil and getting his skin real dark so he can pass as a, as a Middle Eastern Muslim. The guy's from England, and you know, and he's so efficient in their language he he actually pulled it off and he did what they call that trip a haja or something like that you know he he made the trip and never got busted you know they actually even exalted him to a, a position where they lifted him up to the holy holy place of of their service there that one time a year but anyway ling, linguist you know with this consonant language i don't know why i started talking about all that but you know <laughs> I guess to show how lazy Americans are, right? But um, so this the 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 original he- Hebrew name for God 
transliterates to YHWH. That's, that's what it was, and that's called the tetragrammaton, meaning four letters, uh, no vowels. And some versions of the Bible translate the tetragrammaton by Yahweh, inserting the A and the E, which they der- uh, derived from um, Jehovah. But it's most translated as just capital, all L-O-R-D, uppercase, capital letters, right? And But due to a fear of accidentally taking God's name in, in vain, as we see in Leviticus 24, the Jews basically quit saying that word out loud. You know, so they, to them it would be blasphemy to say it the wrong way. So they just quit saying it out loud. So instead, when reading the scriptures out loud, the Jews substituted the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, with the word Adoniah, which, again, is the capital L, lowercase, rest. And eventually the vowels from Adoniah, or Elohim, found their way in between those consonants to form the word Yahweh, as I said a minute ago. Um, But, you know, we aren't really entirely sure if Y-H-W-H should have, this even makes it harder, you've got to be a linguist, to... um, to, if it had two syllables or three. And Jehovah is actually a much later, probably 16th century variant. And the name Yahweh, this is really interesting, refers to God's self-existence. Um, you know, I, as you read the Old Testament, and, um, and we just don't do this, I don't think. Y'all, please correct me if I'm wrong here. These were just kind of the weird thoughts I had studying this. Today, we don't, when we name our children, we don't name them for like, um, you know, Moses' name comes from, um, you know, sounds like the Hebrew word for found in the water or something like that, right? Um, We don't really name our kids like Timothy means, you know, born of Barbara Brown in 1953, you know, just I don't know how we come up with them today, but, you know, in, in this culture, the names meant something, you know, they, they, who, who are some of the ones that are like that? Uh, Isaac. Isaac, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, um, just names, they, there's significance to names in the Old Testament like that. And Yahweh refers to God's self-existence. Um, it's linked to how God described himself, right? In Exodus chapter three, when Moses is like, well, who do I say sent me to them? And, God said, uh, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So again, God's name is a reflection of his being. God is the only self-existent or self-sufficient being. And only God has life in himself. Think about that one, right? And that's the essential meaning of YHWH. Self-existent, life within himself, doesn't need anything outside of that. Well, as time goes by in the, in the ages of Israel's history, the Jewish people are, are, are considered the name Jehovah to be so sacred, as I said a minute ago, that they would not even pronounce it. So when they came to it in the reading of their scriptures, for example, they would use Adoniah instead. In fact, um, when the Jew, Jewish scholars of between the 6th and 10th centuries contributed to the establishment of a recognized Hebrew text, uh, they, they brought the vowels into it, and they wrote the vowels for Adoniah whenever the name Jehovah occurred as a reminder of what should be said. So when, when somebody like that read this verse, the pious Jew, we could say, read this verse, they would say, O Adoniah, our Adoniah, meaning Lord, Lord. But interestingly, David doesn't have any of this belabored piety because he really as you know understood the lord right and he just flat out is jehovah is my god is what he's really saying but you know it's kind of an interesting thing of of how we and our thinking sometimes get we just pervert things you know i mean why why couldn't the scholars have just been like david and recognize god for who he is rather than dancing all around these, oh, I might not be able to say it the right way, so I'm just not going to say it at all. And I mean, what kind of worship is that, right? <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to, you know, that that's back kind of to that rules and regulations thing, you know, rather than just 
falling down and worshiping. But David begins this psalm with that name, Jehovah, maintaining that he, you know, God's majesty and his glory is so great that it, he tells us here it's above the heavens. And um, even Solomon, David's son, would say later in his prayer in 1 Kings 8, 27, says, uh, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So he understood it as well, right? And the reason the creation, wonderful as it is, can't exhaust the glory of God is because God's its maker. Um, now, interestingly, though, although creation expresses God's glory, revealing his existence, right? Romans 1 tells us that. Wisdom and great power, it, it shows, as well as other attributes of God. But it is only a partial revelation of the surpassing greatness of who God really is or who the God that stands behind all of that that he lets us see really is, right? If God has set his glory above the heavens, it's certain that nothing under the heavens can praise him adequately, right? I mean, do you find yourself, you know, in your private prayer time, your private worship time, do you find yourself having thoughts of how inadequate you really are at what you're trying to do, you know, I do, you know, I'm like, what in the world, you know, um, you know, then I'll hear a bird out there or something. I don't know why our house has a lot of birds around it and we don't feed them because that brings chipmunks, which brings snakes and I don't like snakes, but, uh, anyway, I do have snakes and chipmunks, but not as many as I would if I fed them. But anyway, but you hear them, you know, what are they doing? You know, they're they're praising their the creator and how much more us, right? It's a privilege that we have to do that. In fact, he tells us in verse two that even babies and infants praise God, right? And Psalm eight is it's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Um I, I was having this conversation with my wife about, you know, what's the difference between a and, and I'm open for input here, you know. What's the difference between a baby and an infant? You know, I mean, I, I looked it up in the lexicon and all that, you know, and it's like, why would he use two of those, you know? I mean, do, do infants and babies talk? You know, I don't think so, right? Because it talks about, in the Strong's, it says nursing infants. So a, a nursing child usually is not verbal. I mean, they're... Not verbal, yeah. Well, not with, not with. Uh, they're they're loud and they cry, but not with uh, with a known language, right? They're speaking in tongues, I guess we could say, <laughs> right? Um, so why why would he say this, right? They're, they're praising him, and and so think back to uh, Matthew twenty one or forward, I guess, from this time. Jesus coming in the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday, right? While he was in the temple area, healing the blind. Think of this now. Here he is. He's in there. He's healing blind people. He's healing lame people who came to him. And the children who had observed the triumphal entry, they're in there as well right here. And they're saying Hosanna to the son of David, right? Well, what did that do to the chief priest and the scribes that were standing around? They see these kids calling this guy Hosanna to the son of David. Remember what happened? They got they didn't like it, did they? You know, and Jesus replied to them, referring to uh, uh, Psalm 8. He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. You know, so now if they were indignant before, well, they're just catatonic at this point, right? Because he just said he just again qualified himself as God and they couldn't handle that right so um, he shows us that even babies children's lips bring praise to him and they didn't like that so then look at verse four we have a very interesting question starts Um, verse four uh, says lost my spot here what is man? That's the question that it opens with. What is man? The bulk of the psalm, as I said at the beginning, is about man, although it exalts God to start with. So we've got God in his proper place 
and, and um, being exalted in his glory above the heavens. But now we move to man. What is man? Um, and the first thing that is asserted about man, as we see here, is his insignificance in the vast framework of creation. And that grows out of the opening verses. When David thinks of the glory of God exceeding the greatness of creation, and then he thinks of creation, he's struck with how small he is in comparison to God and in comparison to all of God's creation, right? So I I think this beautiful section of the psalm drew out of David's memory of perhaps, uh, we've got so much more available to us today, but this probably came out of David's memory of being out tending sheep in the in the wilderness and just even looking up at the sky, right? I mean, we can pull out our phone right now and Google this, that, or the other about science and astronomy and, and find all this stuff at our fingertips, but transport yourself back here and he's out at night and he just looks up at the sky and, and, and sees all of the heavens and the glory that they show forth like that. Have y'all ever been somewhere out, really out in the wilderness at night and seen the stars? I mean, it is astounding, right? And um, that was especially true for David. And you know, as he looked up at the stars and he just came with this phrase, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, you talk about shrinking in significance, but hopefully sometimes you experience that as well because that makes the fact that you know the creator personally even more special right when you look at this and and uh, i'm i'm always amazed at um you know the new discoveries that science does come up with and but you realize that you know we we read or hear about these new discoveries but they're they're, they're not new to god right nothing has been is new Nothing is new since the end of the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1, verse 27, perhaps, right? Nothing is new from since then. There are no new this, that, or the others. Now, certainly some things have changed a little bit. I've got to be careful not to use that E word in the wrong context, right? Evolved. Right. I mean, you know, some birds like Darwin's deal of these birds and what's the name of that island? Galapagos or something like that. You know, well, it's got a different beak. Well, it's still a bird. You know, I mean, he's figured out how to feed there. But anyway, um, you know, it's uh, nothing is new to God. Everything that is there. We God allows us as time goes by to discover new things. I remember years and years ago I was reading uh something i can't remember what book it was a john piper book and he was talking about one of his favorite things to read with his kids was uh this thing called ranger rick have you ever heard of ranger rick um i guess he was a guy from a christian perspective that wrote science for kids and um they discovered uh this new spider in europe a european water spider and, uh, of course, Piper's point was, well, it's new to us, but, you know, it was made on whatever day of creation the creepy things were made, right? <laughs> and uh, But we just found it out, you know, well, this spider lives in the bottom of ponds only in Europe. Now, you're thinking like me, I used to be an exterminator. Well, spiders breathe air. They don't breathe water. So how does a spider live in the bottom of a pond? Well, very uniquely, he comes up and he gets himself a breath of air and he's got big lungs i guess for a spider and he goes back down to the bottom and he weaves his web you know and he builds a thing on the bottom of the pond only in europe and um and then he comes back up once he gets it completely built he goes back and forth and gets air and brings it blows it in until where he can make it a day and live in there and everybody else can survive in there as well because this guy's always transporting air back and forth Pretty unique, right? But guess what? That was made on whatever day God created those. I should have wrote that down. But pardon? Well, I don't know. He just that's where they all live. I don't know what he catches. <laughs> uh, maybe larva. You know, 
uh, salamander eggs or something. But anyway, you know, new scientific knowledge is my point, right, that we can come up with. Um, but it's always been there. It's all part of God's creation. It's always been there. And then, um, of course, this doesn't register with me at all, but it does probably with some of y'all. Mathematically, much more has been discovered, right? Just mathematically. I mean, just think of what we know about the earth today. As I said, I, I'm reading this book on the, the source of the Nile. You know, these guys, you know, li- you know, lots and lots of money was used on these expeditions Lives were, were, were taken on these expeditions. And all we got to do right now is pull out Google Earth. And in three seconds, I can tell you right where the source of the Nile is. Why do y'all have to go through all that, right? Should have just waited a hundred years, 150 years. But, um, but so mathematically, scientifically today, we are much more advanced. You know, now there are billions of solar systems, right? We live in the one little one the milky way but you know we know some of the distances mathematically between all these today but it you know the um it just hopefully shows mankind that that god of this vast universe is is the god who made it orders it and to think that that god would care for you and i the way that he does that's remarkable that is supposed to cause us to worship him, right? When you think about it, but again, we 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 usually pervert that. But not only does God think of us and care for us, which is what verse 4 asserts, but he has, look at verse 5, he has crowned us with glory and honor. Us, as messed up as we are, he has crowned us with glory and honor. This means that he's given human beings the mere specks in this universe, a significance and an honor above everything else that he's created. Let that sink in for a minute. You and I, as believers in Christ, the pinnacle of God's creation, have been crowned with glory and honor, right? And this, David makes this point to us really strikingly in a couple of different ways. First, he uses the word glory which he had first used for God, now uses it for man. Verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens. This is a glory that surpasses even the great and overwhelming glory of the heavens, right? And But then in verse 5, speaking of us, you've crowned up him, meaning mankind, with glory and honor. And this is an effective way of identifying us with God and of saying that he has made us, here we go again, in his image right we, we always got to keep coming back to that reflecting God's glory in a way that the other parts of creation don't now we just talked about all that grandeur of space and science and creature creatures but none of those except mankind have been given the 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 honor of reflecting God's glory so what a remarkable thing that is right um, and the second way David emphasizes man's special significance is by speaking of his rule, uh, I'm sorry, as his ro- role as ruler over the nations and over the creatures. Rule is something that normally we think is ascribed to God only. But um, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says he is the blessed and only ruler, king of kings and lord of lords. But Psalm 8 says that God shared this rule with us making us the ruler over creation, particularly in respect to intelligent life on earth. So I think one of the most interesting aspects of Psalm 8 here is the way in which it places us, mankind, in what has been called a mediating position in the universe. Mediating position, right? It it views us, places us midway between the angels, which are above us, and the beast, the creatures of the ground below us so we're, we're both spirit and body being right we're not a, a a try makeup we're one spirit and body the the heart soul mind is is all the same thing heart soul mind spirit and then this fleshly body the angels have spirits but they don't have bodies animals have bodies but they don't have spirits you know i mean i know you 
think whether there, there will be animals in the new heavens in the new earth, um, but they don't have spirits. Uh, whether or not our pets are in heaven, I don't know. Randy Alcorn, I want to think they are. Randy Alcorn says that they are. But then here's the, my, my problem with that. And, and we just had one. My, my famous squirrel hunting dog is chasing squirrels in heaven, I guess, if they're still there because he's gone now as of recent. But uh, um, are the pets in heaven only the pets of the elect? Oh, no. What about Fido? That was my neighbor's dog. But theology, yeah, that's right. Ask a Presbyterian, and yeah, they're there too. Um, but uh, so we, however, we got both spirit and body, and so we come between those two, right? We're midway on the scale, if you will, of intelligent creation, and that's how Paul describes it in, in Psalm 8. It begins and ends with God, as we said, but in the middle, it speaks of the heavens. Then, then it says, look at verse 5 through 8. Yet you have made him, speaking of us, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So in this section, you know, uh, we have the illusions of what? Genesis chapter 1, right? Right there, which shows us David was acquainted with Genesis. But here's the interesting thing. When the psalm gets around to describing describing mankind, specifically it describes him as being a little lower than the heavenly beings, rather than what? A little higher than the beasts. Now think about that. We're in the middle. We're lower than the heavenly beings. We're above the beasts of the fields. It could have been written the other way around, right? If we're really a mediating uh, uh, being, it, the psalm could say um, that we were, were, it could say, say it the other way around, but it doesn't, right? And the reason that it doesn't, I think, is that although men and women have been given a position but midway between the angels and the beasts, it's, it's our, our special privilege and duty to look upward, which then puts us focused on God rather than looking downward, which would put us focused on the beast of, of the earth, the animals, the insects, and everything else. Um, do you guys, um, when you're out and about, uh, do you pay attention to the things below, you know, the ants and the things like that? Man, you didn't call me? Well, I turned on the lawn sprinkler where we get some coolness, you know? Yeah. But in a minute, all that water was collecting. I saw these little things look like earthworms. Well, it wasn't earthworms. It had a little snake head on them. Oh. I told my wife she was scared. But anyway, this week I saw it on a, on a, a news briefing that there was an invasive worm species. They had a picture of it. And that was it. That was it. I can't think of the technical name. Snake-headed worm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hammerhead worm. Yeah. I mean, I, I pay attention to that kind of stuff as well. My wife's oblivious to it. You know, I'll be driving down the road and I'll say, look at that caterpillar, you know. I'd see that stuff. I don't know why, but but I do. Have you ever... Pardon? Can you find the ketchup? Probably not. I have to holler in the living room. Where's the ketchup? Um, although I know where it is. It's on the right-hand door on the top shelf. <laughs> they asked me something else, no. Because I used it the other day, and I put it back where I found it. Um, Clearly you don't have children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's in the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen a dung beetle doing his thing? You know, uh, you know. That's one good thing about hiking in in North Georgia with all the roots and everything. You can't look up like this. You got to be looking down, or you fall. At least when you're my age, you do. You trip on roots. But um, but yeah, you see stuff like that. But um, but that's that's a, an honor for us though to be looking up rather than 
down at, at, the, at the creatures of the earth. But we've been made in God's image. So in the, in the Hebrew text, it's really interesting. Has anybody got a different word in verse 5 than having heavenly beings? And God, okay. Yeah, that's that's at the end of my notes. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, but so what? What is the word heavenly beings in in that verse there? It's 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 the word Elohim. All right. So God is a better translation there than the heavenly beings. And uh, I've got all kinds of reasons why here, but I'm going to skip over them for the sake of time. But so that is that the New American Standard? I th- yeah, the, uh, and it just. I mean, you know, uh, Elohim is, you know, in the first verse of the Bible, it's the, it's the plural word for God. Uh, and so that, that's, but I don't know why the translators in a lot of different translations go for uh, angels or heaven, heavenly beings. But, but nonetheless, we're below either of those in this realm anyway. But again, as was pointed out, the translation that the author of Hebrews gets he, he picked that up when he referred to, to Jesus, saying that in, in the incarnation, God made him a little lower than the angels for the purpose of achieving our salvation. But nevertheless, the translation, God, as I said, is, all, is almost certainly correct. The, the uh, main commentators uh, see it that way. But again, the allusions are being drawn from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible has God, and the New American Standard has God. Um, but not only is Elohim the word exclusively used for God there, but the emphasis of the chapter is again being made in God's image, which we are. We know that. So, um, so here's the sad thing though. And this gets back to where my, what I said earlier about God, us realizing that mankind is made in the image of God is what's, the lack of that understanding is what's wrong with our culture and society and our, I guess our world, we could say today. You know, and that's the sad thing. Although made in God's image and ordained to become, what are we ordained to become increasingly like as we walk out this Christian life? Conform to the image of Christ, right? Becoming more and more like him. Sadly, we've turned our backs on God and, sent, and are not looking upward any longer, but uh, which is our privilege and our duty. But now we're all actually looking at mankind and really the beast, if you will. And a great biblical example of that, and I'm sure Drew taught on this in Daniel, but the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember him? Right, He turned his back on God saying, as he looked out over his great vast empire, he said, quote, this is Daniel 4, verse 30, is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, right? That is a classic statement of secular humanism. And you see that today, right? Describing creation as of man, by man, and for man's glory. And with the word still on his lips in verses 31 and 32 of Daniel chapter 4, it says this, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And we know what happened, right? He goes insane. He's out with, you know, eating with the wild animals. And because, because he did so, he was driven out, right? And, and I've noticed, isn't that just like our society today, right? We've lost sight of God. No longer are we seeing the, the creature, mankind, is made in God's image, whose chief end is to what? Glorify God, right? 
and enjoy him forever. Or as Piper says, by enjoying him forever. It, it has eliminated God from, from our collective consciences. And because we no longer look to God to der- derive our sense of identity and worth from him, we only look where? We're just looking down at the creation. And guess what? That's, that's what evolution's all about, right? That's what humanism is all about. Eliminate God, and all you got left is that. And we're only slightly advanced from the beast, according to that theory, right? But since we see ourselves as beasts, what do we begin to act like? Beasts, right? Just animals. Indeed, you know, we're worse than that, really. I think, you know, we end up doing things that animals wouldn't even dream of doing. So, do you all know what furries are? You know, everybody aware of that? You know, this is people that are identifying. This is children in school, public schools of Cherokee County, identifying as cats and dogs. Now, this is the... This is the truth. I was at, I love high school football. And if you're in Cherokee County and you're over 65, you can go to the county uh, school board office or wherever it is. And you get this thing called the Spirit Pass. You can go to any high school event for free, including parking. And so, you know, musicals, uh, plays, any sporting event. You know, so I love high school football. So I'll go to... Uh, we live near Sequoia High School. I'll go to Sequoia High School on a Friday night and watch a game. I usually go on the visitor side because it's less crowded. So I was there last year, and there was a guy. There was a, they were playing a team from up in North Georgia somewhere. But there was a guy there that was a principal of a school down in McDonough. And his son was the coach of the team from up north. So we're talking, and I don't know why we got talking about this, but I had no idea what a furry was, you know. And uh, he starts talking about, yeah, we had a school board meeting last week. This is 2022, I guess then. It was before the new year. In in metropolitan Atlanta, Georgia, a, a school board had to have a special called meeting to ban... Uh, cat bowls and water, cat food and water bowls from the public school. So these parents are packing cat food bowls in their kids' lunch boxes or their backpacks, and they eat their lunch in the cafeteria out of a cat food bowl. And and they, you know, real stuff, right? That's where we've gotten. You know, we aren't created in the image of an animal. We're created in the image of God. Yes, sir. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it always plays out that way. Well said. So if we're training them in the things of God and they're creating the image of God, that's what's played out at the end, right? So what does God do, though, right? Now, thankfully, we know what he does. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and that then it gives us who he has crowned with glory and honor, uh, he puts us in a position to be able to go and take that message to these people that are perishing in, in, these, in these ways. Uh, and, and what happens when we do that? Again, it may be just one family at a time, right? But praise the Lord that we had the opportunity to bring change. The Lord has, brings the change, but he uses us as the instruments to one family at a time or one person at a time really but then that does affect the family and and please don't I I have to slow myself down so often when I've got a new person I'm working with to automatically assume oh well you know you grew up in Atlanta Georgia certainly you know all that stuff about God I got a new guy I'm meeting with that um last week um he he did not know about uh the exodus you know um and, and about the plagues, and uh, and then so I thought, wow, what a cool opportunity to teach the Passover and the cross and the blood, and, you know, and it just goes. So don't assume, right? We get ourselves in trouble, or I do, assuming that this person knows this, and we go straight to trying to get them to an understanding of who God is, you know, and, and we we got to slow down and, and teach it properly. But again, that's great news for us because... We, God gives us the opportunity to do that. So 
all of that said, then I had a bunch more, but we're out of time. Um, David, um, at this point, he, he, he tells us that what we do is we look up to God and by God's grace, he redirects our affections and he begins to work in conforming us and others into the likeness of Christ, which then, as David does ending this psalm, he, he says right where he started, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we started with God and we got all our mess in the middle and we end with God and we got ourselves a good hymn, right? So any final thoughts? Oh, the name of the book is um, the name of the book is called "The River of Gods" by Candace Miller, Millard Miller, um, same lady that wrote "The River of Doubt," Theodore Roosevelt's thing. She's a great author. Uh, That's that the 1850s. Yeah, yeah, he's the he's the one one of the leaders on this expedition to find the source of the Nile. But she, I guess, she put that story at the beginning to show the tenacity of him. Yeah. You know, I'm asking because there was a guy, uh, an, uh, an Englishman, recent, more recently. Okay. And I was wondering yeah. if it was the same. No, he he almost got busted. Uh, he had hired a guy to help him, and that guy, he found his sextant. You know, the you probably know what they look like and everything. It's like a surveying student, yeah. And, and, but he had, he had so well prepared everything that nobody would know what anything was that he even took the bronze and, off of that and changed it to make it look like something else. But this young guy recognized it. And so he starts screaming, infidel, infidel. But the other guys on the trip shot him down and overrode him and so it all worked out so. this, this, I've always thought this was kind of exclusively pointing to Christ but you're saying it's, it's kind of both right it's pointing to which verse the, well, verse 5 you obey the Lord you God you honor the glory of man so you put all things under I see what you're saying yeah well, Hebrews, as, as he said, the book of Hebrews uses it in the context of Christ. Right, yes. Right. Yeah. So it's pointing to both then, both Yeah, the yeah. Then, the way I taught it, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And sometimes. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because then if you look at Philippians 2, you know, where every knee will bow, and that, you know, I think that, and then Hebrews chapter 2 as well. All right, well, we'll see you next week.